So if you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 7 through to 15. Uh, we're in the last six weeks or so of this series that we've been doing on the letter of Paul to the Corinthian church. It's technically 4 Corinthians because there's other letters that have been sent to this church in between the two letters that you have in your Bible, but those have sort of been lost to the sands of time. And so we'll roughly have spent about 30-something weeks in this series, which means we're on the downhill stretch. We've sort of turned the tide. We're at the turning point of our time together here. But the letter itself has also sort of changed tone. You see, Corinthians, by and large, includes Paul addressing a group of people who at one point were opposed to him, but have have sort of changed their opinions of him. Uh, They've moved back to being in favor of Paul. They've repented of sort of separating themselves. But maybe there's still a few on the fence. And so Paul writes most of this letter to persuade the fence sitters uh, or to assuage any of the lingering doubts in people who have come to be convinced that Paul is in fact who he says he is and the gospel that Paul preaches is in fact the true gospel. That's most of 2 Corinthians, but these last three chapters that we're giving ourselves to over these next few weeks are Paul not addressing fence-sitters anymore, but Paul directly speaking to the people who directly oppose him and the people who continue to support those who oppose him. So there's a heated tone here. Uh, There's actually, and we'll see this as we get into the text, Paul writes with sarcasm. Like he writes with uh, this jealous, righteous indignation. And to me, when we say that Scripture is inspired, it's a profound thing to say that God has inspired sarcasm as a way to teach people about himself. And yet that's what we see here in this text. Last week, Paul has made it abundantly clear that the people with whom he has these disagreements, these false apostles in the Corinthian church, they're not having minor disagreements over insignificant issues. The reality is that there is a wide stream in which to swim and still remain an Orthodox Christian. There is freedom to have a great deal of disagreement among other Christians and still count one another as brothers and sisters. We can agree to disagree on whether or not tattoos are a sin. We can agree to disagree on whether or not speaking in tongues and the charismatic gifts are for today. We can agree to disagree on systems of church government. We just probably shouldn't start a church together. We can agree to disagree on what it looks like for Jesus to return, whether that's a pre-millennial, post-millennial, whether the rapture's a thing or not, whether the left behind books are full of crap. We can agree to disagree on all of those things and still be brothers and sisters. But there are banks to this river. And when you climb the banks and scale them, you you are no longer within the stream of Christianity. You're something else. And what Paul has made abundantly clear in this letter is that the people that he's writing to now are not just brothers and sisters who have minor disagreements about whether or not it's okay to drink alcohol every once in a while. This is not a, a conversation among friends with slight differences. This is a question about what the gospel is. This is a question about who Jesus is. This is not insignificant. It's profoundly important. And so he continues to address these people in our text for the evening. This is 2 Corinthians 11, verses 7 through 15. Paul says this, Did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. This is that divine sarcasm. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way as the truth of Christ is in me. 
This boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I don't love you? God knows that I do. And what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim that those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. It's no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. Heavy. Weighty. Uh, Some have even said that this is the sharpest criticism that Paul levies in any of his letters. It's interesting, over the course of the last year or so, I've had the opportunity to go to a couple different cultures. So last summer I was in Uganda, and then in November I was in Scotland, and then a couple weeks ago I was in England, and even though Scotland and England are the same island, they're vastly different in terms of their culture. The thing that you find, even if you just travel the United States, you go to the West Coast, you go to the East Coast, you, you begin to notice that there's these cultural values, these cultural practices that are not right or wrong, necessarily, uh, but they are different, and there's, there's cultural expectations and commitments that kind of throw you for a loop. So, point in case, two weeks ago in England, right, right before we left for this trip, I was told by one of our partners over there, you need to make sure that in your pictures or in your greetings of people, you don't throw up the backwards apathetic peace sign. Because in England, this is the equivalent of the middle finger. They should not have told me that, um, in part because it made me paranoid, but also because it's like when you have a red button and say, don't touch it, uh, the temptation is to press the button. And so there's, there's these numerous instances where British friends of ours would be taking pictures And I just think the apathetic peace sign is funny, and so I do it all the time over here in the States. And so they would go to take the picture, and I would go to chuck it up, and I'd go, uh, hey. So there's all these pictures of me pointing, and that's just because I was trying to save myself from offending our our partners in England. Or in Uganda, one of the things that they told me when I first got there was, hey, listen, so in the States, no big deal for guys to wear shorts. And you can wear shorts in, in the village as you're working, as you're doing labor, but you should know that in this culture, for, uh, the only people who wear shorts are girls and young boys. And so when you stand up to speak publicly, and that's predominantly what we were doing, which was preaching and teaching pastors, if you stand up in shorts, it's the cultural equivalent of like you teaching in a diaper in the United States. So I didn't wear shorts. Nothing wrong with that just a little bit different. One of of the things that missiologists have noticed is compared to every other religion in the world, Christianity is truly transcultural. It is the only faith that has the ability to move from Uganda to England to Scotland to Tampa to Taiwan and Shanghai and remain at its core the very same while adapting to all of these not bad but different cultural idioms. And yet... There are some cultural commitments that are not morally neutral. There are some that are inherently wicked. See the entrenched racism in the Jim Crow South. See the corruption of the caste system in India and the cruelty that it produces. See the tribal warfare that occurred in Rwanda that led to the genocide. And when Christianity comes into contact with those things, it becomes a ticking time bomb. It is only a matter of time before when Christianity encounters the wickedness of human culture, it sets it on fire. Paul is addressing his critics here, 
and he's addressing the fact that he's offended their cultural sensibilities. He, he asks this question, did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? There's a cultural offense that he's committed that stands behind this question. So like in our day and age, you can bring in a guest speaker. We, we brought in guest speakers here at College and Career before. It's customary to pay them. Now, Christians want to be spiritual and say, oh, this is a ministry, just pay me whatever you want. But they always actually expect to be paid. That's just like a, a politically correct way of not asking for money. But, but in, in the, the wider world, especially with prominent figures, there's a speaker fee. I read it in The Guardian this week. Barack Obama's speaking fee is $400,000 per engagement, which is well within his right as the former president of the United States to charge whatever he wants when he decides to make a public appearance. So it's customary in our day to pay people for speaking. It was customary in Paul's day, but it carried greater significance. Actually, in Paul's day, the amount of money that a speaker charged to speak was seen as a direct reflection of the truthfulness and the significance of what they were saying. So the more that you charged, the more important your message must have been. And so Paul comes to the Corinthians, and he refuses to take their money. And, and in his day and age, there's all sorts of philosophers and thinkers and prophets and mystics just wandering across the Roman Empire, taking people's money, and the higher they charge, like the $400,000 Obama rate, people would go, you must have something really good to say. So when Paul refuses to take their money, the Corinthians are, are really left with these three or four conclusions. Either Paul, in refusing to take their money, is admitting that his teaching is not worthwhile and his message isn't worth their money. Or he's admitting that nobody would actually pay for the gospel that he's preaching, and so he just has to give it away for free. It'll be like fidget spinners in 10 years. Or he's not actually an apostle. That, that's what they're forced to conclude. And they're offended. There's a cultural offense that takes place when Paul refuses to take their money. But most people would say there's probably a good reason for this, because Paul's not above being paid. Uh, Paul's, Paul's not above, above receiving reimbursement for the work that he's doing in the churches and preaching the gospel. But what most people would say is that the nature of Corinth was such that they were rich and they were well off and they were accustomed to paying people to tell them what they wanted to hear. And they were accustomed to giving money to speakers and traveling speakers and those speakers in turn sanding off the rough edges of their message so that they could be told what they wanted, not what the speaker actually had to say. And so Paul refusing to take their money is an act of integrity in preserving the gospel's integrity. He does not want to be owned by these people. He does not want them to feel like they have the ability to censor the truthfulness of what the gospel is because they've given him money to pay for him to be there. But this is taken and it's run with. He didn't take our money. He must not be an apostle. He must not actually have anything good to say. If his gospel was really worth anything, he would have charged something for it. See, these super apostles charge all sorts of money. They must have a better gospel. This is the line of thinking. So Paul asks this question, did I commit a sin when humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? The answer is obvious. No. You didn't sin. You offended our cultural sensibilities, but you offended them in the interest of preserving the truth. This is worth considering because in our day and age, I think commendably, people are recognizing the destructive power of words. Uh, they're recognizing, that by and large, we operate pretty insensitively towards people who are different from us. 
And so there's, there's this push towards a greater sense of kindness in the way that we approach people who have different opinions and come from different backgrounds. I think that's a good thing. It's something to be commended. I don't like conflict. Like, I can't deal with the thought of the fact that people don't like me. So if you don't like me, don't tell me, because it'll eat me alive. I won't be able to sleep for days. Um, and yet, this desire, this desire to sand off the rough edges of what we have to say in the interest of not offending when it comes to the gospel, can become profoundly destructive. Because the temptation for you and I will be, in the interest of not offending people, that we take away the very things that make the gospel distinctive. And eventually we take away piece by piece by piece in the interest of not offending to the point that the gospel we're preaching is no longer one that can save. And we may not offend cultural sensibilities, but we have not spoken truly about who God is and what he's done in Jesus. Paul refuses to do that. And he asks them, did I commit a sin by not taking your money? But look at how he explains his approach to the Corinthians. He humbled himself that they might be exalted. He preaches the gospel to them free of charge. He makes this sarcastic remark, I basically had to rob other churches to be able to be around you. But it's in order to serve them. And then he goes on and says that when he had needs with them, he did not burden anyone. The language that Paul continues to use over and over again is that his approach to the Corinthians, it's, it's not arrogant, it's not flaunting, it's not flashy, it has no overlap with the people who oppose him. There is a humility, there is a, a gentleness, there is a submissive, humble, kind approach to these people. I mentioned last week, I've, I've been thinking a lot about this lately, the way in which the validity of our message is wrapped up in the way that we communicate it. Sometimes true things get lost in the medium through which they're conveyed. So, point in case, let's, let's say you're at a, a fine romantic dinner with your significant other. You're sitting two or three feet apart at Leroy's Selman Steakhouse. And you, at the top of your lungs, with veins bulging, scream, I love you so much. Okay, you will probably be single by the end of the night. You might be in prison. You will lose your, your reservation. And it doesn't matter how much you meant those words. It, do, it doesn't matter how sincere you were. Because the way that you communicated them has rendered them null and void. But if you find yourself in the same situation, and with kindness and with sincerity, without raising your voice over like 120 dB, you say, I, I love you so much. Well, then the message is conveyed. And it's understood because the medium fits the message. It's not enough to just say the right thing, but it has to be embodied and expressed in a way that lends credence to what you're saying. Here's my point in all of that. Paul approaches these people. He says he does it humbly so they can be exalted. He does it to serve them. He refuses to burden them. Paul has humbled himself to preach the gospel to these people. And most, most scholars have noted for a long time that all of the verbs that Paul, or the adjectives that Paul uses to describe himself are the words that he uses to describe the incarnation in Philippians 2, which we read during worship. That Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, and humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, even unto death on a cross. So Paul doesn't approach the Corinthians like one of their wandering philosophers that they can just pay off to hear whatever they want. Paul doesn't approach the Corinthians with show and pomp and circumstance and flash and pretension. Paul approaches the Corinthians the way that Christ approaches us. 
and humility. And, and, and this is at the heart of what we believe as Christians, is it not? That, that God the Son has stooped down to our level to raise us up with him. This is what we image forth in baptism. If I baptize you, I've said the same thing every time. You have been buried with Christ in his death and raised to walk in newness of life. And we confess this as Christians, that the Son has sunk to the absolute depths of our humanity into death itself to raise us up to the heights of glory in the resurrection. That he has humbled himself so that he might raise us up. There's this band called My Epic that has a song lower still that captures this well as it walks through the life of Christ. It begins with the virgin birth saying, look, he is covered in dirt, the blood of his mother mixed with the earth. And she is just a child throbbing in pain from the terror of birth by the light of the cave. Look, he's kneeling, he's washing their feet, though they're all filthy fishermen, traitors and thieves. Now he's pouring his heart out while they're falling asleep, but he must go lower still. There is greater love to show. Hand to the plow further down now. Blood must flow. He must go lower still, lower still. Paul does not approach the Corinthians with the pomp and circumstance of the world. He approaches the Corinthians with the humility of the incarnation of the Son of God. He doesn't just speak the gospel to them. He lives the gospel among them. He doesn't just talk about the humility of Christ. He models the humility of Christ. He does not divorce his words from his deeds. And that's important for you and I to think about. There's, there's this uh, quote that I have really a, a complicated relationship with. It's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi. And it says, preach the gospel at all times, use words if necessary. Looks great on like an IG post. Looks great on your Twitter. Might go good in your Instagram bio. But as I've gotten older, my mind has changed like 15 times in terms of how I feel about that quote. Like in high school, I loved it because it offended my stuffy Baptist friends. In college, I, I hated it because I felt like it was an excuse for you to never actually talk about the gospel. And now I, I'm kind of split down the middle in the sense that it's not totally wrong, but it's definitely not all the way right. Because the fact of the matter is that no matter how nice you are, no matter how kind you are, no matter how generous you are, nobody will derive from your kindness alone the fact that the Son of God died for their sins and rose from the dead. The Dalai Lama seems like a pretty nice guy to me, and yet I would never gather from his kindness anything that I've read in Scripture about who God is and what he's done. But at the same time, you can have the most eloquent, brilliant, thoughtful, and engaging expression of the gospel. You can speak the gospel with clarity that can't even be fathomed. And if your life is not shaped by the gospel, what you have said is that this gospel I can so articulate does not have the power to change me and probably doesn't have the power to change you. It's not words or deeds. It's both. Paul walks towards the Corinthians in both. In humility, he lowers himself so that they might be exalted. He comes with the money that was given to him from poor churches. What an offense to their pride, the arrogant, rich Corinthians are being told the saving news of Jesus through the help of poor people who they wouldn't even bother to look at on the side of the road. And he embodies the gospel. He goes on, though, and see how different Paul is from the people who are trying to supplant him and oppose him. 
He says in verse 12, what I do, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. So he says, I'm not changing my approach just because it sort of offends the people who want to oust me. He says, such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond with their deeds. So so see the difference here of how these people are approaching the church in Corinth. Paul approaches in humility, not terribly eloquent, probably mumbles, probably has to look at his notes, but the gospel that he brings to them brings life. The false apostles give off the appearance of righteousness. They're terribly impressive. They take lots of money, like $400,000, which means their message must be really, really important, and they are dealing in the currency of death for these people. There could not be a greater difference in terms of the choices for the church in Corinth about who they will submit to. Paul makes this comment that has puzzled people for a while. He says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. There's a a couple different opinions. One is that he's referencing a passage in Isaiah um, that seems to refer to the fall of Satan. Uh, Other people think that he's referencing a common Jewish saying. Uh, So we have these sayings in our cultural vocabulary where we talk about, like, I could never tell a lie, which is the thing that George Washington said when he chopped down the cherry tree, only we all know he didn't actually do that. That's just sort of a phrase that we pass around. And, and so there, there was this common saying among Jewish people, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, which is to say that evil never appeal, appears like evil when it presents itself. Falsehood never looks false when it's presented to people. Very, very few folks that I know of go, I love evil. I want to do bad things. Maybe a few want to do hood rat stuff with their friends. But, but most people think that what they're doing is right. It, come to, it comes under the appearance of truthfulness. It comes under the appearance of building a better world. It comes under the appearance of an angel of light. And yet, at its heart, there is deception. And and this is what Paul says about these false teachers, that on the outside, they seem great. They appear right. They appear sincere. And yet, what lies behind them is death. And this is not just a criticism of what existed in Paul's day in Corinth. This is not just a liability for false apostles and heretics. This is a a liability for you and I. The the possibility and the temptation to put on pretenses and mask who we actually are and the sin that actually exists in our heart and just seem like we're wonderful and handy-dandy and fine when we show up here, giving no thought to who we are when our doors are locked and our blinds are down. Gosh, I can think in my own life in the last two years of leaders who I loved and respected and continue to be influenced by who have utterly imploded when people found out who they were behind that veneer of their goodness. This is is not just an issue for heretics. This is a dividing line that runs down the heart of every single Christian, the temptation to hide who we are, refuse to expose our sin and repent of it, and so fester in it that all that we have to offer under the veneer of righteousness is death. I I named my cat after a guy from the second or third century of Christianity. 
uh, a man named Ignatius. And Ignatius was an early church leader who was sentenced to death in Rome. And this strange thing happened where the Romans sort of led him on a tour through all these cities, probably to show off what happens to Christians. And he was able to write letters to the churches in each of the cities. And most of the letters have been preserved. And in his letter to the church in Rome, right at the edge of his death, he makes this claim. It's not even a claim. He makes this statement to the church in Rome. He says, I request on my behalf that you pray for both inward and outward strength, that I may, that I may not only speak, but truly be, that I may not merely be called a Christian, but really be found to be one. For if I truly be found a Christian, I may also then be called one. This is the great challenge, and it's not just the challenge for super apostles. The challenge is to put on a veneer of righteousness, but to walk in wickedness, to take the title of Christian without bearing the life of Christian, to speak the gospel clearly without living the gospel in our lives. And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're coming through a season of darkness and you need to repent. You need to strip off the veneer of, of perfect piety and you need to take time before the Lord and, and to one another to confess, to repent of your sin, lest you be, as Paul describes, giving this appearance of righteousness, but only disguising yourself. So that is my appeal to you tonight, that you would not just speak the gospel and you wouldn't just talk about it and put on a Christian face while you're here at church, but that you would embody the gospel in your lives, that you would not simply be called Christians, but you would be found to be Christians. And that where that has not been the case, you would take the time to repent.